Well, happy Sunday. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I will have the scriptures up on the screen. Hopefully that will be helpful to you. And today we're taking a look at uh, part of the Luke's birth narratives that are often overlooked. Uh, the uh, scenes that we are most familiar with, of course, is the coming of the uh, the angels to the shepherds, the actual birth of Christ, the, the visitation of the shepherds to to Mary and Joseph and, and the child Jesus. And very familiar to us also is what comes uh, a year or so later would be the visit of the Magi as uh, Mary and Joseph and, and the baby are then in a house and, and that visitation takes place sometime later. But in between there, something very profound happens. And it's in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 22. And we're going to learn today that the faithful servants of the Lord are not surprised by his coming, but are found alert and serving while they wait. We're going to see two examples of this in the temple, and the context is simply this. Now Luke 2, uh, 21 accounts the fact that Jesus was taken, and at the end of eight days he was circumcised there in the temple. So they're staying local. They're staying in Bethlehem uh, after the birth of the child. They're closer there to the temple. They present Jesus in the temple for circumcision and his official naming at eight days of age, according to verse 21. And then verse 22 and following takes place at the time of Mary's purification, which according to the law, after a period of time, after the circumcision of, of the child, that the uh, mother then would go through a purification ritual and a, an offering would be made for the firstborn. And so the firstborn uh, son would, would cause an offering that was to be holy to the Lord. Now leave that up to you if you want to read about that in Leviticus 12 and see that. There is great significance in the fact that this is mentioned, that Jesus is in places called the firstborn, including the firstborn from the dead, but he is indeed considered the only unique son of God, but by being such, he is also the firstborn son of God. And so all these things are relevant. All these things were revealed to Israel in these laws and these things that they had to undergo uh, ahead of time. So the point is very simply this for Mary and Joseph. They were being obedient to the law. They were doing what was necessary, what was told them by the Lord to do in presenting the child at eight days and coming after purification and making an offering after 33 more days. And there's two people found there in the temple waiting for the Messiah. Now I want you to think about this from their point of view as much as we can, as much as we know about those who were waiting for Messiah, what their expectations of Messiah were, and one thing that stands out above all other things is that Messiah would be faithful to follow the laws. And as such, God would have the Messiah born to people who would follow the prescriptions of the Lord. And so if you were one in Israel, waiting for Messiah, you would know one thing for certain. Sooner or later, he's going to come to the temple. And so this was a reasonable place for them to be going. Not only was it the hub of, of all worship and, and all their faith and practice and as good and faithful Jews of the time, but it was a place to wait 
for the Messiah. And so we're going to look in verses 22 through 38 here, and we're going to read about this scene. And what I want you to do is really try from the perspective of of Mary and Joseph taking this child after what they've known and been told by the angel and and by uh, Elizabeth and the situation with John being born and all these things in the background. And here they come to present Jesus in the temple according to the law. And this is what happens. It says, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we pray the reading of this scripture and the exposition that follows, Lord, will be pleasing to you and helpful to your people. We pray, Lord, you will reveal to us what it means to be waiting for you and that you will work by your spirit and by your word to to motivate us and equip us and and mold us to the image of christ that we would be patiently waiting for him found serving and expected we thank you lord for these scriptures in jesus name amen well the first thing we need to understand is that the faithful wait, the faithful wait. If we look at verse 25, there's a very interesting word here for waiting. And this word appears again. It speaks there of Simeon. It appears again in verse 38, speaking of Anna. And so this word um, is also used of another biblical figure in the Gospels. It's mentioned in Luke chapter 23 or 
toward the end of Mark, and that is a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was also waiting for the kingdom of God, as it says. And generally, it's mentioned by Paul as he is brought on trial before Jewish authorities late in the book of Acts, he suggests that indeed all faithful of his fellow Pharisees are waiting. And that's the word that he uses. This is a word that more than half the times it's used in the New Testament speaks of an expectation of specifically the Lord's coming, either the first or the second. And this word for waiting draws in more than just a simple biding the time. It's an idea of an expectation. It's waiting with hope and with an expectation of something to come. And the way this word is used in the New Testament makes it clear for us that this is a virtue expected to be found in the faithful people of God. Look how Titus, uh, how Paul talks about this to uh, Pastor Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, the proper way, according to what we see there and what Paul is saying to Pastor Titus as he leads other believers, as he becomes the next generation of, of leaders to, to lead others in the ways of, of truth, he weaves all through this idea that we're waiting expectantly, waiting with the proper lifestyle to be found living in a way that's glorifying to God, that is in accord with all that he considers to be right and true. It's far more than just accepting that he's going to come. It's even more than believing that he comes. It's to actually prepare for it so as to be found in the right condition when he does. Now this word is used again by Luke in chapter 12, which we'll look at later. But this word is critically important for us to understand that the faithful in Jesus Christ are found waiting. And look how they are waiting. They are waiting, and I've outlined this uh, in a, in a simple way here, they're waiting with the word, with worship, and with witness. With word, with worship, and with witness. First of all, with word, we see Simeon has a song here, and this is the fourth of the hymns that we see in the scriptures. I'm going to get you back to that just momentarily. And he says in this, and what he says is rich, in scriptural context. In verse 30, as he says in the hymn, um, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Well, that's an allusion perhaps to Isaiah 52.1. Certainly the idea is there. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and unclean. In other words, wake up, see, experience what is being seen here. And he says in uh, verse 31, back here he says, you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. And this is something that is a theme of the scripture that is seen all the way from Genesis chapter 3 when God gives a promise that the head of the serpent will be crushed. That he's going to undo all that the fall of mankind did. All that sin brought into the world, God was going to undo somehow. And then starting in Genesis chapter 12, he begins to narrow down the people group through whom this will come. But even early on and all through the history of the nation Israel, God reminds them, this is for all the nations. And yes, it's coming through you. And yes, you've been selected. And yes, there's no other nation like Israel who has the covenants that they have with God. But nevertheless, the blessing is ultimately for all nations. Look how the psalmist says it in Psalm 98. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. That this was always in view. That this would be a worldwide salvation that the Lord would bring. So back to verse 32 of what Simeon says. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In Isaiah chapter 40 and following, we begin to learn about a servant of the Lord that will come. And as we look back in hindsight and, and we have the New Testament to guide us and to point these things out, we see very clearly that servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that servant was going to bring salvation, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. He says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And we see that Simeon's song here, verse by verse, is rich in the context and the knowledge found in the scriptures. And not only that, as he speaks to, to Mary and Joseph themselves, and he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, he is bringing forth another theme that's also found in Isaiah and something that's found throughout all of scriptures, that the Lord will be, become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. That this one who would come would send every human being one of two ways to great blessing and sanctuary and salvation or to offense and suffering and eternal exile. Jesus came to divide the world. And this is the profound truth, and this is seen very clearly in what Simeon is singing here and what he is saying personally to Mary and Joseph. And it's not so much Simeon's ability to quote scripture and to just string quotes together that sound nice, but it's to know and understand its meaning. By what he says, he clearly knew that God's plan was coming through this servant, this Messiah, that had been spoken of by Isaiah and others. 
and that it was about ultimate eternal salvation, that this was a promise for all the nations. And do you know, this is what the faithful of God do. They know his word. This is why we find in, in this passage in Luke chapter 2, Simeon and Anna are found in the temple. Because that's what God's people do. They hang out with God's people in such a context as to be exposed and edified and cleansed by the word of God. In the temple, there were daily scripture readings done by the priests. There were also priests and rabbis that would be found teaching and reading all the day long in the temple. If you wanted to know God and you wanted to understand his plans and you want to understand his word, you would be found there in the temple as often as you could, sitting under the teaching of the faithful who are there reading the scriptures and expounding the scriptures daily. God's people learn his word. They take it to heart. They act upon it and proclaim it as he does here. And Simeon was clearly a man full of the word of God, and he uses it to worship God and to bring a great blessing to Mary and Joseph. The second thing on my list here, which this is a list, the word, the worship, the witness, this is a list of not only those things that identify the faithful who are waiting properly for the Lord, it's an encouragement of how is it that I can be waiting properly for the Lord. Because so often life kind of takes over and, and it becomes our focus and the things of this world take our focus and they need to and some of those things are necessary that we have to attend and be faithful with the things that we've been given and support our families and, and take care of the business of the day. But it's hard sometimes to stay focused. It's hard sometimes to have foremost in our mind this waiting upon the Lord. And with the anxiety of the day and the pressures of the day and the things that need to be done, that anxiety will take us over and take our focus off of the Lord. How do we maintain focus? How are we found content in waiting with his word, and with worship, and with witness? See, the very essence of worship Simeon and Anna here in the temple. And it's not just that they are in the temple. And it's not that they're just excited about what's going on. But they are speaking to God. And they are speaking to people about who God is and what he's done. And of all the ways that we can make worship more complex than it needs to be, it's good just to take a while and say, okay, really, what is worship? Worship is this. It is speaking to God and to others about who God is and what he's done. This is not the focus of the hymns that we sing. And sometimes the hymns are addressed directly to God and, and to speak to him. Sometimes the hymns are not directed to God. They're directed to someone else. Well, why do we sing them then if we're not singing them to God? Sing them to one another. 
And sometimes the greatest reason for us to sing out loud while we're together in church is this, to be an encouragement to your fellow person. And you might have a voice like mine, and you might think, well, there's no way my singing is an encouragement to anyone. But you know what is an encouragement to them? That I'm willing to open my mouth and embarrass myself because I love God more than men. It's really about how much we love God and how much we want to encourage others. That somebody might hear me up here plodding along through a hymn and think, wow, God must be really good to make him humiliate himself that way. But you remember, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and so I'm going to go ahead and be foolish. Notice in in Luke 2.28 here, what Simeon says here. He takes the child up in his arms and he blessed God. His song is directed to God. Now, God inspired the word of God, right? God had his prophets write down the word of God. God knows the word of God better than anyone else. In fact, the scriptures call him the word of God. So why would Simeon address this to God? As if God needs to know. What comes next is a question that is existential in nature. In other words, really touching to the real purpose and meaning of our existence. Why would God's people sing to God things he already knows? Because he made us for his glory. And every time that you tell God something that's found in scriptures, you are connecting with him on a level that is spiritual, that you are truly worshiping when you attribute to him who he is and what he's done. And this is what Simeon says in the first line, he says, is personal. This is something that God had revealed to Simeon, a promise that God had made to him. Now, did that come in a dream? Did it come in in kind of an audible voice to him? Was it told him by another a faithful person. We don't know how he received this, but he knew he was going to see Messiah before he died. And on the day he does, he looks at the Lord and he says, yeah, I remember your promise and today you've kept it. So beautiful. And then he goes on and he goes, yeah, I've I've seen your salvation. You said that we would see it. You said that you would bear your holy arm. When you analyze Isaiah, you come to the conclusion perhaps that the arm is Jesus Christ and he's been revealed to the world. And in the servant passages, including chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah, that speaks of the suffering of the servant that we know speaks of Christ so plainly. It talks about the fact that he is revealed to the nations. He is shown to all. And Simeon praises God for it. You've prepared this in the presence of all the peoples. 
because he stands there in one of the most profound structures on the face of the earth. It was one of the wonders of the world at the time, the temple found in Jerusalem. And at that time, after Rome took it over, and Rome had basically somewhat peace in the land and had built and established roads throughout the Roman Empire and things like that, people could go visit there. Some wealthy person in Greece would say, where do you want to go this summer? And someone else would be like, hey, let's go down there and see that temple in Jerusalem. I heard that's such a thing. Yeah, my friend Claudius went down there. He said it was really neat. Now, the Jews, they're a little wild, but you've got to go experience that. And look what the Lord does. Marches his Christ right in there to the center of Jewish worship in the world. The Jews now scattered among all the nations, but coming back to Jerusalem regularly and taking back with them news of Jerusalem and taking out to the world their ways and God's wisdom having scattered them in exile. Now they were an influence all over. And he brings his Messiah into the temple. And who's found there? Other people that lay witness to him and say, look here, this is the salvation of the Lord, and he's now visible to all the world. And he's come here to the temple. He saw Jesus. Now, we don't know how much Simeon understood. He understood a great deal. We know that most people with their concerns and expectations of Messiah, they got it wrong in many ways. And that's because the Lord was bringing Christ in such a way as to hide it from some. But he was a man looking in a glass dimly. See, Paul refers even to ourselves as that, even after Christ had come and had been risen and had ascended and Paul says hey right now we're just seeing in a glass dimly we don't see everything totally clearly the Apostle Paul said that and so we know Simeon didn't have every little detail of theology correct we don't know if he understood what the sacrifice of Messiah was going to do or even if he really understood that he would be a sacrifice in the way that we now understand it as it was revealed. But he knows enough to worship God. And what that says to me is that no matter where we are in our Christian walk and where we are in our Christian faith, we can worship God in spirit and in truth with whatever little nugget of truth we know, whatever it is that we have. And there are mysteries and there are things that we don't understand and we trace them down as far as our minds can handle it. But then at some point we have to kind of throw up our hands and say that rest of that idea is a mystery to me. But he's provided salvation. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought the people of Israel through all kinds of things and in his great mercy and his patience he held on to them and even when he scattered them, he brought them back so that he'd have a place to bring forth the word of God and then to bring out of all that the Messiah so that we could all be saved and the message could go out to all the nations. And we can echo that back to God and we can worship him for what he's done and what he will do. 
as far as we understand it. Now I want to point out verse 37 to you. Verse 37 here. Anna was a widow from the time that seven years after she had been married, so, you know, maybe, what, 20-ish? Until the time she was 84, or she was a widow for 84 years. So it's a bit of a translational difficulty. It's unlikely she lived to be 100 years old, so she was probably a widow until she was 84. And I want you to think about, based on what she would know at the time, and her exposure to the scriptures, not having a copy of the Bible, you know, at home or anything like that, coming to the temple, being under it, reading it, or hearing it read, listening to it, memorizing as much as she could. Do you think when she worshipped, coming to the temple daily for 80-some years, you think she ever repeated herself to God? You think she ever said the same thing over and over? It's like, that's the same thing I said yesterday. Sometimes we struggle in our prayers because we think, no, I already prayed that. I can't really pray that again. I, I need to pray something different. That's be something new. Does it? If it's still true, is it still worship? It's still worship. She came and continued to give thanks to God. Decades of thanksgiving. There's no doubt she had repeated herself over and over and over. But that is worship to continually more day in and day out to praise God for everything that you can imagine. The faithful of God are found waiting, and while they wait, they wait with the Word of God, with worship, and with witness. With witness. Both Simeon and Anna are partaking in this worship, are are worshiping God, are experiencing God, but they are both also proclaiming God's Word. And as we partake of God's Word, and as we proclaim God's Word, those are both forms of worship. I only separated these out in order to make an outline and kind of organize my thoughts. This is all worship. Reading the Word of God thinking about the Word of God, praying the Word of God to Him, proclaiming the Word of God to others. This is all worship. And that's why we call this a worship service. And so many times as we try to, as we make up our church language and, and we make up churchese, as it's called, and when we begin to organize and define and things like that. People call the music part worship, and then they call this the preaching of the word. It's all worship. And it's as simple as breathing. We breathe in from God, his word, 
his truth, illuminated by his spirit, what the other fellow believers are encouraging us with and bringing to us and what they're saying and what the word of God says and how these things work together. And as the spirit works on the inside to, to make sense of these things, to magnify them, to, to help us in our prayers, then we exhale back to God in praises and thanksgiving. And we exhale back to others bearing witness about who God is. The believer's lifestyle is as regular and as simple as breathing. Breathing in the things of God. Breathing them out back to him and to others. Simeon had some words specifically for Mary and Joseph in verses 34 and 35. And he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign it is opposed. And he says, singularly to Mary, it seems. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. God is good enough to be real with us. He, does, he never suggests it's all going to be easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to imply, as he teaches about what it means to be a believer and follow him, he seems to imply things will actually get worse before they get better. That following this suffering servant will mean our own suffering. And so he reveals this to them and then you might say, well, gee, Simeon, that's a downer. Maybe he shouldn't have said anything about that, you know, and just kind of let him go the way. No, Mary and Joseph had to know this because probably within 12 to 18 months, they were fleeing for their lives to Egypt. And then they were living in a land of Egypt, a land that was not their own, a land of different languages and different fashions and all this false religion around them and everything else, much like the Israelites did for a while. And they lived there for some time before coming back. That wasn't easy. When they did come back, they settled near their hometown up in Galilee where all the rumors were about Jesus and his and. Mary's potential infidelity and things like that. Yeah, those rumors were there. They were still around. We see them in the Gospels. And they went and endured that. And God was easier on Joseph. Maybe Joseph wasn't as strong as Mary because Joseph's not around when Jesus is taken and crucified. But you know, standing there, looking up at the cross, looking at her son suffering and dying, yeah, he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He did many miraculous and incredible things. He was no normal child. But nevertheless, she held him. She fed him. She raised him. She carried him. She becomes part of the church. After his ascension, he appears to her and many others. And she had seen the risen Lord along with those who were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. And she's there when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church for the first time. And she sees the fruit of what he went through. 
wouldn't it make sense that she had in the back of her mind, I remember that old fella in the temple, he told me this wouldn't be easy. But I knew there was something greater after. I knew this was a light of revelation for the Gentiles. I knew that it would be not only for the fall, but for the rising of many in Israel. And when she thought back on the saying of Simeon, did she think, did he maybe mean by rising, did maybe the Spirit of God reveal to him, this is also about resurrection? It's about the fall and rising of many. They needed to know that this was not going to be an easy road. And this was an encouragement to Mary and Joseph. The testimony of these two people in the temple that let them know that they're not alone in this. They would be surrounded through their lives by the faithful who would believe as they did, who would be able to walk with them. And once the disciples came around that, hey, these men agree with Jesus and they're willing to go the distance for him. And, and they kind of failed there at the end, but but they'd never really left him. And from the cross, Jesus commends her care into the hands of John. And she spent the rest of her life with the people of God, the family. The real family is Jesus defined it because he said, look, my mother and brothers and sisters, it's not, it's not them out there. It's people who do the will of God. An interesting thing about what Anna does here, look what she says. In verse 38, coming up the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So Anna is speaking these things to everybody. Mary and Joseph see Anna. Anna's going around telling other people how exciting that is. And Mary, of course, treasured all these things. We breathe in and we breathe out. So let us breathe in as much as we can and let us then breathe out as much as we can. The Bible also speaks of it as a cup that's overflowing that we have filled our cup so much that it overflows. We've got to share it. We've got to pass it around. Let others drink of it. If you want to boil down what Christmas is all about, it's about the fact that God is working in the world and his people are making it known. Angels told Zechariah and Mary and Joseph who in turn shared it with one another and with others. Angels told the shepherds. The shepherds go and echo it to Mary and Joseph and then to many others. Simeon and Anna echo it to Mary and Joseph and many others. And they all still speak today. They spoke to us today. As we opened up the word of God, there they were and their testimony remains. So that we may go and do likewise. Our command is to go and make disciples, and so we shall, by breathing in and breathing out the truths of God. What are our encouragements for us today? Our encouragements are very simply this. First of all is this, 
Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Only by the Spirit of God can we be in right standing with Him to be able to wait faithfully. That's the thing that's said about Simeon. He was, the Holy Spirit was upon him. These things were revealed to him by the Holy Spirit and he came that day into the temple in the Spirit, as it says. And you can only have that Spirit of God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins. You want to live in a way that's worthy of those who are to be found waiting. Like Paul described there in Titus, that we looked at earlier, that we want to be those that someone says, what, what's your deal? You live this way. Is it hard to live that way? You say, no, I'm, you know, the Lord could come back today. And I want to be found in an appropriate situation. And then you can tell them all about it. And don't wait. There's something each and every one of us have in common in our beliefs concerning eschatology. That is, last things. How is it the Lord's going to return? What it's going to be like and everything else like that. The one thing that we all have in common in that expectation is that in some ways we are wrong. In some ways, we're wrong. We're, we are united in error in many things. And every day that someone waits to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, every day that someone thinks, I want to live this life just a little more before I get serious about the church thing, every day someone does that, they gamble with their eternal life. They risk the hardening of their heart. If you do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have no reason on earth to believe that you'll come tomorrow. I would wager this. I would wager that tomorrow it might be even harder to come because you didn't come today. So that's my encouragement to you. Don't gamble with your eternal life. Faithful servants of the Lord are not surprised by his coming. They're found alert and serving while they wait. So wait expectantly for the Lord. This word Luke uses again in chapter 12 in his passage 35 through 40. And I'm going to read this to you. And then we will end it here. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect.
We're encouraged by Luke, to, by Jesus. It's recorded by Luke here. To be like servants who are waiting for their master to come home. And you've heard it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And many people take that out of context. And they say, this is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. No, this is the returning master returning to the house. It's a fragment of the same teaching where he is saying, you know, knock at the door. Okay, now the question is, why would the master come and knock on the door of his own house? Well, in those days, they didn't have keys. If you were leaving on a trip, and you were the master of the house, and you were leaving the servants there to take care of the trip, you would hope that the servants would lock up every night. They're going to be in the house, and they're going to lock the doors, they're going to protect the house. And when you come back, you'll have to knock. And he comes back, they know not what hour, but they're going to be listening for the knock. They're going to know he's coming back, and they're going to be ready to get up and answer the door. And there's so many metaphors mixed together here and so many illustrations mixed together by the Lord. It can be a bit confusing. But let me answer just a couple things. First of all, Why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? He came one time. He's going to come again. Why didn't he just do it all at once and get it over with? Well, if you haven't noticed, there's been a few people born since then. And this gives them all an opportunity to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're born into a world in which the gospel is proclaimed. And they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So every day that he waits is a day of his great patience. That there's still more to come. And the fact that he hasn't returned yet today is an encouragement to us that says, there must be more that are going to believe. Let's go find them. The Lord is working on an eternal timeline. He is bringing in his perfect peace. He is bringing in perfect justice and salvation for a great multitude. And every day he waits is a day of salvation. So we praise him for it, knowing that he continues to save. Let's pray. Father God, as we read this account, we know two things about Simeon and Anna. Number one is we want to be like them. We want to be like them in that they were, they were waiting, they were expecting you to come. And we want to be among those who are expecting you. And we want to be found faithful during that time. But the second thing we know about them is that they didn't do all this under their own power. And so we call upon you to empower us to be as those found waiting to convince us by your word, encourage us by the words of one another, and fill us with your spirit, that we can be those who are found breathing in and breathing out the great word, the great truth of God, that we can be partaking of it, and so be enjoying it ourselves, but even more, be enjoying the sharing of it to others. Lord, this is who we desire to be as individuals. This is who we desire to be as a congregation and as your worldwide church even. 
Lord, we desire to be those who are found waiting, worshiping, and proclaiming, and basking in the Word of God, and sharing it with all who will hear. We thank you, Lord, that you have granted these things to even those foolish things of the world, that we may glorify your name, that we may lift up your praises forever and ever, that we may be found waiting when you return. We thank you for your great care and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.